It was a grisly murder that shocked the world. On October 2nd, 2018, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi entered his country's consulate in Istanbul, thinking he would pick up some routine papers showing he was divorced from his wife, papers that would allow him to marry his Turkish fiancée who was waiting patiently for him outside. But upon entering the consulate that day, a Saudi hit team drugged him, suffocated him with a plastic bag, and then dismembered his body with a bone saw. The Saudi government at first denied any knowledge of what happened to Khashoggi, then admitted that yes, he died in what they termed a tragic accident. But on Friday, President Biden's Director of National Intelligence, Averill Haynes, released a long-delayed report concluding that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the son of King Salman and his country's de facto ruler, approved the operation to capture or kill Khashoggi. Given that the crown prince had absolute control over the kingdom's security operations, the report says, it makes it highly unlikely that Saudi officials would have carried out this operation without the crown prince's authorization. What will this report mean for U.S.-Saudi relations? And is the U.S. government withholding key details that would make these events even more embarrassing for one of America's oldest allies in the Mideast? We'll discuss with Congressman Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and then we'll talk to journalist Peter Beinart about the prospects for reviving the Iranian nuclear accord on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So this report uh, has been a long time coming. Actually, uh, Congress mandated a declassified report about what the CIA knew about the Khashoggi murder uh, as early as early 2019. Trump just simply refused to comply. As he later told, famously told Bob Woodward, he saved uh, the crown prince's ass and basically absolved him of paying any price for, you know, this really shocking murder. And now new crowd in town, a new director of national intelligence, and we get this report, which didn't go as far as some of us thought it might, but at least it pointed the finger at the crown prince. Yeah, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about this because, as you say, it is important that there is an, an official public U.S. government recognition that uh, that MBS did this thing. On the other hand, this thing that he did is so abhorrent, so evil uh, that you you can't but feel like the fact that that he is not being uh, punished or or held accountable or sanctioned in any way is you know is is a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, there there are no sanctions against him. Yeah. Right, and and let me just say you know there are so many ghoulish, horrible aspects to to what happened in in that uh, Saudi consulate in, in Turkey. But I was reminded today, just reading again about it, that you know the Saudis sent a forensic doctor 
and autopsy expert who had the bone saw and who who dismembered Jamal Khashoggi, and he did it while listening to music. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just hard to believe that uh, you know that that this happened you know at, at the direction of of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who is almost certainly going to succeed his father and uh, and become king um, of uh, of Saudi Arabia, um, and yet nothing happens to him. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of, uh, you know, really, uh, when people talk, use the word justice in, in this context, I mean, we, the U.S. government, have sanctioned the people who actually did the murder or oversaw the murder, such as Saad al-Qahtani, who's the sort of right-hand man for the crown prince and is named in this report. He's been sanctioned, as is the individuals who are on the hit team. But the guy who approves the operation, i.e. the crown prince, is not. Uh, And that's kind of, you know, there's also been a trial in Saudi Arabia in which I believe it's five people were convicted, not including Saad al-Qahtani, not including the intelligence officials who surrounded the crown prince and were clearly involved in the operation. They all walk. They don't even get charged in court. And the low-level guys, you know, pay the price. Now, how much of a price, we don't know, because it's a Saudi justice system that is completely opaque. You know, in some ways, I think the most stinging uh, punishment uh, of uh, of the Saudis, the most embarrassing punishment could come from this uh, D.C. city council member in Washington, Ward, <laughs> Ward yeah. 2, uh, I think Brooke Pinto is her name, who introduced legislation uh, that would change the name of the, of the road in front of the Saudi embassy to Jamal Khashoggi Way, so that every time the Saudi ambassador or any other diplomat who works in that embassy has to <laughs> walk through the yeah. gates there, uh, they see his name. Right. One can... Uh- uh, you know, uh, conjure up uh, Adil Al-Jaber, our old friend, now the Saudi <laughs> foreign minister, going into the embassy when he's uh, in Washington, walking by the uh, newly named street, if this passes the city council. One other detail. Look, we didn't learn a lot of details about what happened inside that consulate. There's been a lot of reporting, including the detail that you mentioned about how this uh, grisly murder took place. But one one detail that was new was that of that 15-member Saudi hit squad, seven of them were part of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's elite personal protective detail known as the Rapid Intervention Force, the RIF, and I'm reading directly from the, from the report here, exists to defend the crown prince, answers only to him, and had directly participated in earlier dissident suppression operations in the kingdom and abroad at the crown prince's direction. So if anybody has any doubt that the crown prince's fingerprints are on this murder, 
they should read um, those passages uh, in the report. The larger question, of course, is what do we do about it? Uh, the Biden administration announced a Khashoggi ban on um, individuals who, at the behest of a foreign government, participate in operations, uh, extraterritorial operations to suppress, intimidate, or capture dissidents. That's a, that's a move. It's a step. Doesn't go as far as some would like. But, um, we've got an excellent guest to, um, uh, opine about all this. Uh, Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. And then we'll be talking to Peter Beinart, a very smart journalist about where things are going to go with the Iranian nuclear accord, which is another big part of the puzzle piece of the Mideast. So- and his uh, provocative piece in the New York Times a few months ago in which uh, he argued for a one-state solution uh, between the, the Palestinians and the Israelis. Uh, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see if he, how, how well he defends that. It's a, it's a pretty um, far-reaching uh, and provocative idea. So let's get to it. Uh, we are joined now by Congressman Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So we have been waiting a long time for this report on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, we finally got it today. Your reaction, your thoughts? Well, I was very pleased that the report not only finally came out as required by law, but that it was as unequivocal as it was. Uh, this is a blunt statement by the Director of National Intelligence uh, of Real Haines that uh, the crown prince has blood on his hands, uh, that he is directly implicated in the order to capture or kill Jamak Shoji. Uh, so I was very pleased. It all not only holds the crown prince accountable, as it should, but also identifies others that were responsible for that murder and dismemberment of an American resident and journalist. But as you know, Congressman, there were a lot of people in the Human Rights uh, Committee uh, on Capitol Hill obviously friends and relatives of uh, Jamal Khashoggi who were desperately hoping uh, that there would be uh, real sanctions with teeth against him, that he would be held accountable and at the very least, you know, restrict his ability to travel to the United States and possibly tarpic sanctions. That didn't happen. What's your reaction to that? Well, I would like to see the administration go farther and I've told the administration as much. Uh, I don't think the president should meet. Uh, with the crown prince. I don't think he should be invited to the United States. Uh, I don't think the president should be speaking with him. Uh, and I think we should look at going after some of his assets in the uh, Saudi investment fund uh, that uh, are tied to entities that had a role in this murder. Uh, so I would like to see them go further. I think they can go further without having a complete rupture of the relationship between the United States uh, and Saudi Arabia. Um, one of the details that leapt out at me in reading it that I think was new was that um, seven members of the 15-member Saudi hit team were part of uh, uh, MBS's elite personal protective detail known as his Rapid Intervention Force, uh, which exists, according to the report, to defend the crown prince answers only to him and had directly participated in earlier dissident suppression operations. That was new and good to know. On the other hand, there are a lot of details that were briefed to you and other 
uh, members of Congress uh, back in 2018 by the CIA that are not in here and that were not included. Would you have liked to have seen more of those details about what the U.S. government knew about what went on inside the consulate when Khashoggi was murdered included in the report? Um, you know, while I would like to have seen the administration go further in terms of repercussions on the person of the crown prince, uh, I think they struck the right balance in the report and what it disclosed. Uh, the most important uh, facet of that report is the attribution to the crown prince and to others uh, who, as you say, for the first time they disclosed what their role was and the connection to the crown prince. Um, going beyond that, uh, you do get into real questions about sources and methods uh, and ultimately, the, the point of this report is to identify these are the people who killed an American resident, who murdered and dismembered that resident, and who need to be held accountable. Uh, and while I understand the, the public desire to know more of the detail, uh, the most important thing, I think, is, is the accountability. And so I was pleased that there was no attempt to obfuscate or equivocate. Um, I was afraid they might redact some of the people involved, or they might uh, be more nebulous in terms of attributing responsibility to the crown prince. The first sentence of the report says the crown prince approved an operation to capture or kill Khashoggi. Now, a lot of people that have looked at the in, uh, at the evidence that was included by UN Special Rapporteur Agnes Calamar say it is indisputable that the purpose was to kill and not capture. Do you agree? Um, you know, I only say that I thought that uh, the way the report articulated the IC's conclusions um, was consistent uh, with the view of the intelligence community and uh, and didn't didn't, uh, uh, I think, go beyond uh, what it felt it could assess with high confidence. Uh, you know, I think that uh, it's clear from this public report that the crown prince authorized this group, uh, this squad to bring him back or, in the absence of that, to murder him. And either outcome was fine with the crown prince. I think that's consistent, frankly, with uh, the approach they may uh, be taking or have taken with other Saudi dissidents that they have wanted to lure back to the kingdom. Um, now, Khashoggi was uh, in a unique situation in that he was among the most effective critics of the kingdom. But, uh, but I, I don't quarrel with that conclusion or how it's framed in the report. Uh, Congressman, um, just getting back to the accountability point for a second, uh, you said that you uh, don't believe that President Biden should meet with the crown prince. I think administration officials said they have no expectation that he will be coming to the U.S. anytime soon, but he is likely going to succeed his, his father, who is 85 years old and in poor health. Is there anything the United States can or should do? Should they? Are there any levers they can pull? Uh, would that be wise policy to try to prevent him from succeeding his father? I don't. I don't think we have the capability of uh, impacting Saudi succession in that way. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure that I would recommend the administration try to do that. So at some point, possibly very soon, the United States would have to deal with the, the crown prince, right? I mean, once he becomes king, can can you not maintain? How do you maintain a relationship with a key ally that has been important in terms of sharing um, uh, counterintelligence information as a bulwark against Iran without dealing with 
the head of state? Well, look, you know, depending on what the administration does, whether it stops with what it's announced or goes further, um, you know, it may factor into the Saudis thinking if they realize that the crown prince is going to be shunned uh, if he becomes king. But but I don't think uh, that we can go beyond that in trying to determine succession. Uh, So what happens if and when he becomes king? Uh, You know, frankly, I think we continue to shun him. Uh, I don't think we have, you know, uh, head to head, state to state meetings. uh, And and frankly, uh, if I were attending a summit uh, in which the crown prince was present, I I wouldn't want to participate in a conversation with him if I was the president of the United States. You know, being being seen uh, to carry on with a head of state who's murdered an American resident. Uh, so it is possible that uh, the crown prince takes steps to try to ameliorate the situation, releases people from custody that should have never been imprisoned, uh, releases family members of dissidents that are being held uh, as pawns, and also takes responsibility uh, for the murder of Khashoggi. I don't know if any of those things are going to happen. But I don't think the administration needs to foreclose the possibility of things changing over time. A lot about this murder was covered up by the previous administration, including information that uh, U.S. security firms may have trained some of the individuals involved in this assassination. Um, Based on what you know, do you believe that U.S. companies may have help train some of the killers of Jamal Khashoggi? I don't have a complete answer to that question, um, but I do think that we should find out uh, if there's any role that American companies played. Uh, I think going beyond that, Michael, that uh, we should look at the role that any uh, American former intelligence community personnel uh, may play or have played in enhancing the kingdom's ability to surveil people around the world, including people in the United States. Uh, That is a broader problem, frankly, than just Saudi Arabia in terms of the export of American expertise when it comes to uh, electronic surveillance. So I do think we need to take those steps and and there should be consequences that attach when we reach our conclusions. Well, as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, uh, do you intend to um, investigate or look into these very matters? Yes. Uh, and in fact, we have. And we, for, for some time now, have been looking at the broader issue of when American expertise, knowledge, technology is used by other countries, uh, even allied countries, to invade the privacy of American citizens or, or others uh, or dissidents, uh, whether they're Americans or not Americans. So this has been a priority now for some years, and we're going to continue. Uh, and we'll, we'll, of course, put a particular focus on any role that uh, Americans, American companies, American technology, American know-how may have contributed to this bloody operation. Hmm. I've got another question just in your capacity as chairman of the Intelligence uh, House Intelligence Committee. The, the main reason that U.S. officials have given for uh, not imposing more uh, sanctions against uh, MBS, uh, you know, more robust um, kind of accountability is the importance of our relationship uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia. And I referenced before uh, the counterterrorism relationship, uh, you know, the issue of Iran. As someone who sees the most uh, sensitive information um, about these issues, 
help us understand, I mean, how, how valuable has the relationship been in terms of counterterrorism? Because for the average American, what they know is that 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were Saudis, and we didn't learn anything at all about that plot before it happened. Um, so every time there is an issue, uh, some, some sort of a conflict between the United States and Saudi Arabia over you know, the war in Yemen, uh, human rights, they always talk about the importance of this relationship. Give us a sense of how crucial it really is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a good question. And obviously, it's uh, horribly mixed uh, in terms of the value that we derive from the relationship. Uh, in terms of counterterrorism, if you look at the Saudi support of radical ideology uh, in madrasas around the world and how that has come back to bite them and bite us, uh, it's fair to ask, is there anything they can, they can do that, that outweighs that pernicious influence? There are discrete areas of important counterterrorism cooperation. There are important ways that the Saudis can play a constructive role if they choose to. Uh, in terms of uh, achieving uh, peace between Israel and the Palestinians and in the region. Uh, and of course, they can play an important role in pushing back against Iran. Um, but, uh, you know, the challenge for us is to, as we have to do with other countries like Russia, isolate those areas where it's in our interest to continue working together. You know, we decided to extend New START with the Russians, even though uh, Putin is responsible for the poisoning of dissidents. Uh, and the invasion of a neighbor. Um, you know, we have compartmentalized certain things because they're to our benefit. And we'll have to uh, try to do the same uh, with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But um, human rights needs to be front and center uh, in our relationship among our priorities. And I think the administration is doing that. Of course, um, uh, one big part of the relationship is that um, the U.S. government, um, and especially under the past administration has seen the Saudis as a bulwark against the Iranians. And um, this administration wants to reinstate the Iranian nuclear accord. Yet just yesterday, we learned that we carried out airstrikes against uh, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq that were attacking U.S. soldiers. Um, which is going to make it a lot more difficult to re-engage on the nuclear accord. Was that the right move, uh, in your view, those airstrikes? And how much, in your view, is it going to complicate trying to uh, re-engage with the Iranians? Uh, you know, I'm in the process of uh, reviewing the intelligence behind uh, that American attack and that response, as well as the legal uh, rationale that's been provided. But from on the basis of what I've seen so far, I think it was justified. I think it was necessary. Uh, and I think it was proportionate. And I also think that uh, Iran will evaluate whether re-entering the nuclear deal makes sense to them, given the uh, economic sanctions they're under, irrespective of this uh, retaliatory strike, this uh, effort to uh, not only respond to the attack of on contractors and, and American troops, but also the need to deter further attacks. Uh, so I, I think that Iran can compartmentalize that way. They will have to. And at the end of the day, the administration needed to send a very powerful, important message that these attacks on our bases, on our troops, 
uh, won't go unanswered. Uh, they're not a freebie. Uh, they won't be tolerated. And so I think it was very important to send that message early in the Biden administration. And hopefully uh, it was heard loud and clear. In weighing the various factors here, um, you said you believe the strike, based on what you've seen, was justified. Is this because of the particular recent rocket attack, or is it more, is it broader in terms of the kinds of activities the Iranians are funding and um, arming in uh, Iraq and in the region? You know, I'm, I'm basing this on the actions of these Iranian-backed uh, militias, um, and I think the administration is, you know, properly um, letting the Iranians know that uh, they will hold uh, Iran responsible for the militias that Iran equips and trains and uh, provisions uh, when they attack uh, American forces. Um, you know, I don't view this as a response to other Iranian malign activity or as a way of, uh, you know, changing the negotiating position going into the nuclear talks. I don't think any of that would be appropriate or probably lawful. Um, but uh, as a response to attack, as a way of protecting troops, uh, I think the administration uh, has a case to make uh, for the response, a powerful case. Uh, but I'm not through with my review of it, given it's uh, um, only hours ago. I have one just one last question on the response to the Khashoggi murder, which is the U.S. has has ended arms sales uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia for the purposes of the war in Yemen. And I believe they've paused and are reviewing the larger arms sales program to Saudi Arabia. What is your position on uh, on supplying Saudi Arabia with arms uh, right now? Is that something that ought to be seriously considered? And would you support a ban uh, on arms sales to Saudi Arabia? Uh, I would support banning arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and, and Saudi Arabia would have to change its conduct uh, dramatically for me to want to lift that ban. Uh, so uh, I'm glad they have uh, put in place the ban in terms of Yemen and are pausing any other kind of military sales. In my view, given the malign uh, conduct of Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, uh, there, there needs to be a very compelling justification to be selling them weapons. Uh, and this gets back to the broader questions you were raising, which is, how much value is there in Saudi pushback on Iran uh, if Saudi Arabia is going to engage in a prolonged uh, and, and bloody uh, uh, civilian casualty-filled war in Yemen uh, that, uh, if anything, ultimately strengthens Iranian hands? Which leads to my my last question, which is a bit of a cosmic one. You mentioned the importance of- Is this going to be about JPL then and the Perseverance <laughs> rover? Because that's made in my district. Uh, when you say cosmic, that's what I think of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you got a lot to be uh, proud of there uh, this week. Uh, you know, look, you talked about the importance of human rights uh, and, and reaffirming it, it as a central part of U.S. foreign policy. But you look at the countries in this region, whether it be Saudi, Arabia or Iran or Turkey or Egypt, and they all have horrible human rights records uh, doing all sorts of really malicious things against uh, political dissidents uh, and uh, political foes. How do you put human rights central uh, in foreign policy in a region where nobody respects them? I think it's all the more reason you have to. Um, there's a reason why I think uh, all the countries you mentioned have deteriorated in terms of their human rights record over the last four years. And it's because they could. 
uh, because they knew there would be no repercussion, uh, that it wouldn't be an issue for the last president, for Donald Trump. Uh, if anything, Trump seemed to be admiring of the more brutal and autocratic uh, these rulers were. Uh, so if they're going to get a pass, they're going to use that pass. Uh, but I think consistent with what our country stands for uh, and, and consistent, frankly, with our interests that we continue to champion human rights, that we champion more vigorously democracy, that we hold up our democratic allies, that we not make common cause with, with autocrats that are murdering their own people, uh, let alone murdering our people. I think it's, it's all the more essential uh, in parts of the world where human rights Records are so atrocious. Sorry, I lied. I actually have one last question very <laughs> quick uh, on a totally different subject. Oh, good. You're going to bring up the rover after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does have to do with your, your your home state of California. We understand that there is a vacancy there for uh, attorney general and the Governor Newsom is considering uh, possibly appointing you uh, for that job. Is that something that you're interested in? Are you considering it? Uh, you know, I'm not commenting on it, but I, I would be happy to to comment on the Perseverance rover. As you can tell, I'm trying to get a few plugs in here. Have you seen those photographs? We'll guarantee that Eric, our producer, will not edit out your comments that, right, uh, on, right. uh, on the Perseverance say, you know, rover. Uh, I, I, and, and you know, of course, that in this age of QAnon, there are going to be a lot of people who will question the authenticity of those photographs. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Another well, subject you know, you're very the, familiar the, with. The Jewish space laser crowd is never going to believe it. <laughs> right. All right. Duck and cover from the uh, Jewish uh, space lasers. Um, right. I want to thank you, uh, Congressman, and uh, you're always welcome as a guest on Skullduggery. Thank you. Wonderful to see you both. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Joining us on the podcast is Peter Beinart, uh, professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York, contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, and now writer for the Beinart Notebook, available on Substack. And Peter, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time because of your incisive views on American foreign policy. You've written a lot of interesting and provocative things about the future of Israel, the crisis of Zionism, which I think is the title of one of your books. Last summer, you argued uh, for the New York Times for a single state uh, to be shared by Israelis and Palestinians, which I'm guessing you got some blowback for that. And we can talk bit, about yeah. that a little bit. <laughs> uh, but um, what really caught my uh, eye, I wanted to start with this short essay uh, that you recently wrote for the Beinart Notebook about Rob Malley, who Joe Biden appointed to be the uh, State Department Special Envoy uh, for Iran. Um, and, you know, mostly Joe Biden's foreign policy picks uh, have been non-controversial. Uh, these are, uh, by and large, establishment uh, foreign policy choices. Uh, but Mali, um, who's not even that high level, I don't think he didn't require uh, Senate confirmation, caused a, a bit of a stir among conservatives uh, in Congress and, and foreign policy uh, hardliners. And so, you wrote this piece called uh, Why Rob Malley Matters, and you have both policy and personal reasons for arguing that he matters. I, by the way, have a few of my own personal stories <laughs> about Rob Malley that um, I want to get into. I'd love to hear them. So uh, let's just start there. I mean, who is Rob Malley and, and why does he matter? 
so Rob Malley is a, a foreign policy professional. He was in the Clinton administration. He was in the Obama administration. In between, he worked at the International Crisis Group. He has very, very solid kind of establishment democratic foreign policy pedigree, but he has a very unusual background. And the background is that his father, who actually, like my grandmother, was uh, a Jew born in Alexandria, Egypt, was uh, a, a genuine anti-imperialist radical, a journalist who devoted his life to basically the cause of the third world, really influenced very much by the revolution in Algeria against French colonial rule, but someone very, very connected to a whole series of anti-imperial movements in Africa and the Middle East, um, someone very connected to the Palestinian cause. Rob Malley has these hilarious stories about how whenever he used to see Yasser Arafat when he was working for Clinton, Yasser Arafat used to talk, used to say things about his father, some of which were completely untrue, like that his father was an expert in Talmud who could prove that the temple had not been actually built in Jerusalem, crazy stuff like that. But so what I found personally fascinating about Malley perhaps because my own father um, uh, was in some ways also, who was from South Africa, was also very, in his own way, very connected to the struggle of the, the kind of anti-imperialist movement um, and had a somewhat jaundiced view of the United States, even though he, like Rob Malley's ended, father, ended up here, um, was that Malley, I felt like, was inhabiting two intellectual worlds. The, worlds of being, the world of being a steward of empire, right? An enlightened steward, but basically managing the, the, the empire, the American empire, and also having in his own kind of ideological DNA, this radically oppositional perspective. And I have been very moved and intrigued by the way that Rob Malley, who, by the way, you should say is not a radical in his views. Um, uh, he only looks radical from the very, very blinkered within the 45 yard lines kind of perspective that exists, I think, sometimes in Washington. But the way in which he's both tried to manage American foreign policy, but also has had an ability, which I think is rare even inside the Democratic Party and practically non-existent in the Republican Party, to get outside of the American exceptionalist kind of mythology and see the way that America is actually often seen from outside. Well, a couple of interesting things about Rob Malley. First of all, Ant uh, Tony Blinken, uh, Anthony Blinken, who's the current Secretary of State, goes way back with uh, uh, with uh, with Rob Malley. They went to school together in Paris. Uh, I went to school with with both of them. Um, and um, I think you point out in your piece that Blinken comes out of a more mainstream liberal internationalist uh, tradition of American foreign policy, and yet he clearly wanted his friend. Rob or Robert, as we used to call him, um, by, <laughs> <laughs> by his. Uh, uh, now you're uh, really going to get him into trouble. I know exactly. Well, I got stories. Believe me, I think that's why every time I would see him, uh, you know, at some <laughs> function, he sort of ran away from me. But in <laughs> any event, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say was that um, I think Malley served in the toward the end, very end of the Obama administration, yes. but he was yes. too hot yes. for even Obama in the first part of yes. it, which was interesting to me because. Obama was also also had, you know, someone who had grown up, lived in Indonesia as a child, yes. had yes. a kind of a sensitivity to the uh, the, the way uh, people in developing countries viewed Amer America's role in the world and its yes. imperialist uh, yes. foreign policy from their perspective. Yes. So how is it Mali um, was not uh, someone who Obama could embrace uh, in that period? 
So I think it's because O'Malley starts to become controversial uh, in, two, in, in 2000, 2001, right after the failure of the Camp David process where Bill Clinton tries to uh, broker Israeli-Palestinian peace. And uh, Dennis Ross um, comes out and basically says, it's Arafat's fault. Um, and Bill Clinton kind of says that too. Um, and of course, Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister, says that. Um, and Rob Malley, writing with a Palestinian, which I, as I noted in my piece, is very unusual for, for an American policymaker to essentially bring a Palestinian voice into this conversation says, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that, that Arafat made mistakes, but you have to understand how this looked from the Palestinian perspective. And, and so that already, I think, made him hot, to use your words, in foreign policy circles, especially among people who, um, uh, who work on the kind of Israel question. Um, and then the second thing was that when he worked at the International Crisis Group, he met in his private capacity with people who with members of Hamas at a time when the U.S. was having nothing to do with Hamas as a as a terrorist organization. So I think to me, I write about this in my book a little bit, to me, I, I think essentially if you look at what happened with the Obama campaign, and this is I think something which has been a feature of American politics, the role of Israel advisor and the role of Jewish community liaison were often interconnected, which is to say if you worked on Israel policy, you had to be able to someone who could do, who could be effective doing outreach to the Jewish community, as like Dennis Ross or Dan Shapiro. If you were someone who did Israel policy and and you had seemed to have an oppositional relationship with people in power in the American Jewish community, uh, and you were disliked, uh, distrusted by them, as Rob Malley was, you were not an asset, you were a problem. Um, and I think that helps to explain why Rob Malley was basically kicked off the uh, Obama administration, uh, of, off the campaign, and then doesn't get a job in, uh, in the administration until quite late. And I think it's very unfortunate, because I think, um, if I had to guess, I would guess that, um, that Obama might have... Uh, actually found Rob Malley's perspective very, very valuable. Well, he wrote a he wrote a pretty controversial piece for the New York Review of Books, suggesting it was uh, uh, the Israelis as much at fault, if not more, yes. for the failure of the Camp David uh, agreement uh, as the Palestinians, and that that yes. did not go down well. But let's talk about why he's of interest right now, which is he is the envoy uh, for reinstating uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, which does not seem to be going too well at the moment. The Iranians just announced that they are going to suspend SNAP inspections. Uh, they don't seem to be in any mood uh, to renegotiate any of the terms, and they are continuing all the um, all the activities that made the deal controversial in the first place. And if anything, they've stepped up the uh, arming and uh, funding for uh, uh, militia groups in uh, Iraq that are targeting Americans, that are killing Americans. It, this seems to be going in a much bumpier fashion than the uh, Biden people had hoped, no? Well, first of all, I think we there's obviously there's a lot of diplomacy going on that we don't, I think, know how it's going to play itself out. The Iranians have now just agreed to basically allow enough inspections to continue in the short term that it's not to not create a crisis. I, I would start with this. Uh, I sometimes feel like we are already developing certain amnesia vis-a-vis um, -vis the Trump administration. We violated the Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians were complying with it. Our own intelligence, the Israeli intelligence, the Europeans, everyone agreed they were uh, they were complying with it. We broke that deal, right? I remember that Iran nuclear debate before in 2014, 2015. Everybody was, all the hawks were saying the Iranians were going to cheat. They didn't cheat. We cheated. It, a year after we pulled out, they then began slowly 
to start to re-enrich, to try to put some pressure for the lifting of sanctions, which have crippled their economy. So it seems to me as a matter of elemental fairness, uh, sorry if this sounds childlike, um, elemental fairness, that given that we were the ones who broke the agreement, not them, we should have been the party to return first. The Biden administration does not has not taken that view. I think that the um, they, they do want to return to the deal. Who wants to return to the deal? Who? The Biden administration does want to return to the deal. Yeah. They yeah. also say they want to re- negotiate another kind of follow-on deal to deal with Iran's, quote-unquote, destabilizing activities in the Middle East. My view Wh- which, be, you, which you accept are real, right? Iran uh, is a destabilizing presence that's targeting Americans in Iraq. Iran's foreign policy is as destabilizing as Saudi Arabia's, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey's, and Israel's. I would say that basically all all of the regional powers in the Middle East pursue quite destabilizing foreign policies. They all intervene in foreign governments in order to promote their side. Um, And seems to me, and they all develop weapon systems, right? I mean. We're very concerned that Iran is develop may be developing a nuclear weapon. I don't certainly don't want them but, to but be. Wait a Israel Peter, has Peter, Israel has a hundred nuclear weapons. None of those other countries you mention are targeting Americans or American military troops. Wait, wait a second. I mean, there's a long history of actors in the Gulf, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, giving support to to ISIS and Al Qaeda, right? Look, read the 9-11 commission. I don't need to tell you this, Mike, as a cop, right? I mean, the the most devastating terrorism of the last 20 years has been, uh, since 9-11, has been committed by Sunni extremists with deep ties to the regimes in the Gulf. Mm. I'm I'm not saying this to excuse what Iran is doing. Iran has absolutely been involved in in, in hideous acts of terrorism. I'm not saying to excuse it at all. But but let's not protect that there's, I do not believe there's a clear Manichaean divide between benevolent moderates in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, or for that matter. I I, I don't know anybody would call moderates, use the word moderates in that sense right now. I want to get back to Rob Malley because I want to talk about I wanted to use it as an excuse to talk about my Paris escapades. Yes, yes, that's what I want to hear about too. I was 15 years old. So, but here's 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 the transition. Here's the segue. I, explain to us why Americans, uh, you know, given his background, given his personal roots, and given um, uh, his his views, why Americans shouldn't be um, suspicious of uh, Rob Malley, and put it in the context of his relationship with his father, uh, Simon Malley. And that relationship, I think, evolved over time and it became, I think, uh, you know, if, if Simon Malley were still alive, dinner table conversations between Simon and, and Rob would be pretty robust. So talk about Simon Malley a little bit and talk about how Rob Malley's views may have evolved over the years. I think that American foreign policy, may established American foreign policy discussion, beltweight foreign policy, is dominated by a prism of American exceptionalism, which basically takes it as its, fa- as its launching off point that we support uh, human rights and democracy or what's now called the kind of liberal rules-based liberal international order. And our adversaries, uh, uh, our adversaries don't. Our adversaries represent the opposite of that. I think that um, the value of, of, for, of being the son of someone like Simon Malley is you can see how farcical, frankly, that, that kind of language often looks 
if you live in the global south, right? If you live in countries that where you where you've been living for much of your life under dictators who were supported by the United States, in countries ravaged by wars that were fueled by America's arms sales, in countries where you have sanctions regimes that have basically prevented people from importing humanitarian goods. And I think that, I, again, I'm not saying that Rob Malley is an opponent of US power. He's someone who wants to skillfully steward US power. But what I think is valuable about him is he has, I think, the capacity, which as you said, I think Obama also did. Obama, after all, grew up in, in Indonesia where there had been mass killing supported by the United States, right, during the Cold War. I think that perspective is very valuable. I think we need people who can see the United States as we are seen from outside. But the other side of the coin is there was also something farcical in some ways about his father's view of the world, a very kind of black and white view. I mean, it's yes. one thing to be supportive of certain, you know, struggles against imperialism or or, or colonialism. Uh, but he was, I, I remember Afrique Azi, mm. the magazine that he founded and, and edited uh, when we were living in Paris in the 70s. It was a deeply radical uh, and militant magazine. Yes. I mean, look, I would say- By my lingered perspective. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> look, I, I, think, I think, look, all, all of us are prone to- um, be blinkered when it comes to the abuses of their own side. So I think there's no, there's no, it's a totally legitimate critique to say that people like Simon Malley and many other people who had deeply invested in the cause of, let's say, Algerian independence uh, or the struggles for independence in, in Mozambique or in South Africa or, 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 or among Palestinians or, or other groups would, would have been too willing to look away when many of those post-colonial regimes became hugely abusive of human rights and, and hugely authoritarian and, and crushed many of the dreams that people had had for them. I think that's an entirely fair critique. But I think when you, when you think about what we need in Washington and policymakers, I don't see an excess of policymakers who are overly romanticizing of uh, anti-imperial movements in the, in the developing world. What I see from my perspective is, is, is an unwillingness to take a hard enough look uh, at actually at our abuses and to challenge the rosy kind of colored glasses that we view with which we view ourselves, which is a human failing. So uh, back in like, I don't know, I think it was maybe 78. I can't remember what year it was. Tony Blinken and Rob Malley, who, as I mentioned, were very close friends at this school, actually participated in a debate uh, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Oh. Uh, Tony, I believe, taking the side of the Israelis and uh, Rob taking the side of the Palestinians. Before anybody uh, defending could post it Uncle on Facebook. Defending Do you have Uncle a recording? I wish I did. I didn't, oh, I did that not would have be an iPhone back then. But let me tell you this. I was actually, I'm a, a couple of years younger than they are. I was actually closer friends uh, with uh, Rob's brother, Richard, who is a very uh, well-known pediatrician uh, up in, in Boston now. Um, and what I do recall, I recall two things. One, uh, what he wrote in my yearbook from that <laughs> school, which was, uh, w w which was, uh, uh, something about our, our, our many arguments uh, about Yasser Arafat and the Pope. I think he took Yasser Arafat's side. I don't know if I took the Pope's. But the other thing I remember uh, <laughs> was that we, when we one night when we a bunch of us were a bunch of us were going to go out to dinner um, and uh, Richard decided that we could we should neither go to a restaurant 
that was uh, aligned with Western imperialists or with re- or with revolutionary movements. And so he decided, let's go to the best Indian restaurant in in Paris because India was a non-aligned right. nation at the right. time. So non-aligned you know. cuisine. Tell it to the <laughs> Pakistanis. Right. Um, so, um, so Peter, you. Um, I'm sorry. Did you have a question for Peter? No, no. I just, wa- I just. Are you just to talk spouting about, about very your, good. Yeah. your days in Paris? Uh, yeah. So, uh, Peter, you wrote a piece uh, last week, Times Op-Ed, uh, calling for um, uh, lifting sanctions on Iran, Syria, mm. and mm. North Korea. Mm. Uh, you equated the um, sanctions to uh, effective blockades that yeah. choke off uh, trade with the outside world. It's the modern equivalent of surrounding a city and trying to starve it into submission. Um, now, I, I guess, how far do you take this? And and since you mentioned the Saudis before, the CIA report on the Khashoggi murder, which uh, implicates or blames it on the de facto uh, head of state of Saudi Arabia, there are going to be calls for sanctions on the Saudis. There are continued calls for sanctions on the Russians uh, over solar winds and lots of other things. Um are you essentially saying we just should throw in the towel on sanctions against everybody or just certain countries? No, no, I'm not against all sanctions. Uh, first of all, I, what I would say is I would have a very high bar for U.S. arms sales to almost anybody. Um, so that would be one thing that I would if I, you know, if I were czar, I would try to radically change. Um, I, I think that I'm not a certain kind of targeted sanctions like like that the they're imposing in Russia now or in, in Burma on the, the particular or in China on the particular people, or for that matter, Iran, North Korea, Syria, particular people who have committed abuses. Um, I, I, I think that I could be, you know, I could support those things. What what I was really criticizing my piece were were secondary sanctions where the U.S. essentially tries to force not, not just us, but tries to force the entire world, banks and businesses around the world, cutting off a country from international trade. That's how you that, make that's how you make sanctions effective, right? I mean I, I, to no, get I other actually think countries the, I, to buy into it. Otherwise Unfortunately the academic evidence I think is overwhelmingly in the opposite direction, which is that that, that what the sanctions are very ineffective as a mechanism of regime change. That actually they often they often solidify the power of regimes because it allows them to take total control over the economy. And what you do is you you immiserate and demoralize already brutalized populations. South Africa we could talk about is it maybe a partial exception for various reasons, but just look at the history. We've had sanctions on, you know, these these kinds of sanctions on Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, uh, Iran for for quite a significant period of time now. They've they've moved us no closer to regime change in these places at all. But there's enormous evidence if you look at, you know, human rights reports that what they've done is they've made it very difficult for people to get basic humanitarian goods. As I say in my piece, U.S. charities can't even export wheelchairs to North Korea. Really? Is that is that really, are we really helping the people of North Korea who are already suffering among, you know, worse than virtually anyone else on earth? Right. So one critique of your piece um, by a, um, a, a neocon, Iris Stoll, uh, was uh, this piece leaves the author, Peter Beinart, in the awkward position of opposing sanctions on terror sponsoring Iran, but supporting them on Israelis who live in Hebron or the suburbs oh, of Jerusalem. Oh, like I knew that he was, I knew that folks <laughs> yeah, were going to okay. say, God, you know. Um, no, not at all. I, I have not suggested that we impose secondary sanctions 
on on is on Israelis such that they can't import humanitarian goods and can't trade with the rest of the world. Not at all. What I've suggested was that we condition military aid. As again, I would put a very high bar on arms sales to anybody. And I said that we should buy products from inside the green line, right? The part of the part of Israel where Palestinian citizens have the right to vote, not from not from settlements in the West Bank. That's not going to deny anyone in Hebron or Beit El or any other settlement their ability to basically, you know, procure epilepsy medicines for their children, which is something that you having trouble doing now in Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. I knew that this gotcha was going to come before I wrote the piece <laughs> and I responded to it, but it's just it's just not, not right. All right. So a an even more provocative piece uh, that you penned uh, for The New York Times back in July Uh, I'll read the title of it. I no longer believe in a Jewish state. For decades, I argued for separation between Israelis and Palestinians. Now I can imagine a Jewish home in an equal state. And there are a lot of people who are saying to themselves, how in the world does that work? Um, And, you know, your first reaction is, well, why wouldn't there just be a perpetuation of the same war uh, inside the borders of this one state? Practical questions like how do you merge the uh, the IDF with the with the Palestinian security forces? I mean, imagine what I don't know if it would be called the Knesset anymore, but imagine what those parliamentary debates would be like now. They're already uh, sort of like what the Capitol looked like on January sixth. Right. I'd say right. right. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I look. I wrote a much longer version of this piece for for Jewish Currents, where I spent you know like eight thousand words, uh, kind of trying to go through a lot of this stuff. I guess I would just say say briefly. In my mind, there is now one state, right? Israel controls all of the territory between, in different ways, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, including Gaza, uh, which Israel, I, I think, clearly controls, right? So what you have is you have one state where you, in which a very large percentage of the people, most of the Palestinians in that territory, um, are not citizens of the state in which they live and lack the most basic of human rights. And my argument is that by now, so you have a binational state already. You just have a binational state where most of the Palestinians are, are not enfranchised. And my argument is that if you look at divided societies and binational states comparatively around the world, we have a lot of data on this. What you find is that they're challenging beasts, but they are more stable and more peaceful when everybody has a voice in government than when millions of people are locked out of government. If it were still possible to create a, a, a Palestinian state alongside Israel, there would be advantages to that solution. I don't think that, I think that ship has sailed. And then the last point I would just make in terms of kind of like, you know, how is this possible? I would just note that there was a moment in historical time where we would have might have said the same thing about the notion that a white Southerner would uh, serve under a black Southerner in the U.S. Army. It would have seemed equally unimaginable or would have seemed equally unimaginable that, that white South Africans would live under a black government. The forces for change can make the unimaginable possible. And, and while there are complicated but the, 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 practical but the difference, questions. But Peter, the difference with that comparison is that. Yeah. Israel was born as as a Jewish state. A, that's what you know, as a Zionist yes. state, right? Yes. So that's that's right. a that's a distinction that seems important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the United States was born as a, you know, the United States was, a, was was born as a white supremacist state, you know, South Africa, right? South Africa was born as a state which was supposed to offer self-determination to Afrikaners and other white people. And it, 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 it evolved through a constitutional revolution into a country whose constitution treats everybody equally. I don't want to suggest that this is easy by any means. I don't want to suggest that this is simple by any means. My, my point, what I, my, my pro- provocation was to, was to say, we need to start 
thinking about how we actually live out basic principles of equality and liberal democracy in a post-two-state world. And, and the last thing I would say is I also wanted to challenge people to recognize that, a, that one binational state already exists. Is it, the, is it the end of Zionism or is it taking Zionism in a new direction? So I argue that, that the, the Zionist tradition has always had this non-statist element. If you go back to people like Achad Ha'am and then the Brit Shalom group in the 1930s and 40s, who, who imagined a Jewish cultural center that would radiate throughout the world, what I call a Jewish home, people like Judah Magnus, Martin Buber, other times Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt, who did not believe it needed to take the form of a state that privileged Jews. And that's why I still consider myself a cultural, although not a political Zionist. I mean, look, just for those of us, you know, first blush, the idea that uh, uh, Hamas and Likudniks are going to, you know, serve in the same army, police force, court system, salute the same flag. It just sounds, I got to say, preposterous uh, uh, on any level. Um, We know about what divisions in this country are like, but they are of a magnitude, you know, a hundred times that uh, in the cauldron of of, uh, of the Israeli and Palestinian dispute, and, and also the lack of any support, you know, within for such a solution on on either side. I would um, I would I would question that. But you can get some Palestinians on that, but I, there's no Israeli support. And what you're essentially calling for is the Israeli government to dissolve itself. I'm not aware right, right, of any but, but, but I, of I think any to- country that has that willingly does goes along with that. Right. You mean you have a situation where one population has basic rights and the other population does not have. That's basic wrong. Rights. Yes. And- which is why a two state solution remains the only the only solution. As an ethical proposition, I would just I, I would just just want to make the point that as an ethical proposition, I think it is dubious to say that the population that has basic rights should get veto over the aspirations of the people who lack them. Right. Because and it's that's the state. What- no, no. Find me a country, a state that would voluntarily dissolve itself. No, so, see, these things do not. They, they don't. These things don't. You know, the French. The French didn't leave Algeria voluntarily. Apartheid did not end voluntarily. Jim Crow didn't end voluntarily. They ended because there were mass moral movements that were able to envision a different reality and also raise the cost. I think there was of an Algerian oppression. war of independence that killed yes, a lot of French right, soldiers. Yes, right. But my, my point is that change. These things don't happen voluntarily. Ideas Really, they can happen if we're very lucky nonviolently. And what you need is a movement with a moral vision, a vision of equality, a vision of equality that has been able to move mountains over the last hundred years all across the world. And I think it's possible that it could in Israel-Palestine as well. All right. We got to let Peter go because he has an <laughs> important right. now meeting that we've settled uh, the issues, uh, yes, after this. But I did want to say before we let you go, uh, how do you subscribe to the Beinart Notebook? Oh, very kind of you to ask. Uh, just go to, uh, just type in Peter Beinart, uh, Substack. Uh, you'll, you'll probably come across it uh, sooner or later. And, um, I'd, uh, you know, welcome anyone who wants to, if you thought what I was saying was totally crazy, then you can get more of it. <laughs> and we will have you All back right. on to, yeah. to give you shit about your cr- totally crazy ideas. Not just kidding. <laughs> Good. Great. I, Thank I you. would enjoy that. We'll do the next one in French. <laughs> <laughs> Absolument. Okay, Pierre. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it.